0: Welcome back. Today I am joined by Nicola Rayhani. Nicola is a psychologist and professor of evolution and behavior at UCL, and her book, The Social Instinct, explores how cooperation shaped the world. Nicola welcome to the podcast thank you for joining us. Hi thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this one I personally am someone who's you know I encourage myself and others to think and rethink to challenge your own bias and to just always be open to learning so I'm often listening to lots of different books I'll be listening to lots of different podcasts and you know on this podcast I speak to different people each week and different industries with varying expertise. And the key thing that I want my listeners to take away are of course, some insights and some ideas that that they can use themselves to impact their own lives and the lives of others around them. So that could be habit and behavior change. It could be listening to the show to get motivated or to, to increase discipline or just an opportunity to listen and learn and get inspired. So, So many questions for you today, Nicola. And I know that the work that you do, the the book, it's it's all fascinating to me. So I think a good place to start with you would be if you could tell us how and why you first started investigating social behavior in humans and in other species.
1: Sure. So um, I've always been sort of fascinated by social behavior. And I think partly that is because it's It's just so integral to what makes us human. So I don't think there are any aspects of our lives that aren't affected by social behaviour or by social interaction in some way. So, you know, even just considering something as simple as your morning commute um, to some of our greatest achievements as a species. So things like sending rockets into space or uh, producing vaccines to a novel virus in under a year or building the Sistine Chapel, all of these kinds of things from the very, very mundane things that we take completely for granted, all the way through to our greatest achievements, hinge on our ability to interact productively with one another and to cooperate with one another. So I've always kind of found that very interesting. But uh, funnily enough, I didn't actually start out by studying humans. Um, My first foray into the study of social behaviour was a species that probably well, I know not many people have heard of, um, and it's called the Pied Babbler. And that is a bird um, about the size of a blackbird for people who are in the UK listening to this podcast um, that lives in the Kalahari Desert. And they are interesting because they live in really tight-knit family groups where um, all the group works together to raise a single nest of chicks a single um clutch of offspring and that that was actually how i um made my first foray into studying cooperation and social behavior was on this sort of esoteric bird that i was chasing around the kalahari desert for the best part of four years
0: Wow, well, as you say, you know it's it is really interesting to think about how behavior, everything from you know our day to-day choices, I suppose to to the bigger things that we all share. and I think that's what I'm always interested in when I think about behavior, motivation, um you know what what drives people essentially to do what they do. I think that's probably you know one of the reasons that I started this show is I've always been interested in yeah, what makes people tick, what makes them do what they do and and are there some common shared themes that we you know as as you say human nature and what are the yeah what are the similarities and what are the differences so I guess human nature maybe that's also a good place to start like I've heard you talk about how It's really important right now, especially the time that we're living in for us to challenge the narrative that humans as a species are innately selfish, you know, individualistic, that we are competitive and destructive and that this leads us to conflict. But actually, in fact, that we are very collaborative and that cooperation has given us an advantage. So I guess, how do you define cooperation? And what is it about our ability to cooperate w- with one another that has given us an advantage evolutionary?
1: So for me, cooperation is basically working together to achieve mutual benefits. So um, we're cooperating when we get on a crowded train, for example, and we offer our seat to somebody who might need it. Uh, we're cooperating when we do things like wearing a face mask to protect people from airborne viruses, Um, when we work together on team projects. So, you know, cooperation sort of infuses every aspect of our lives. And I think sometimes we can take it completely for granted. We actually don't see just how much cooperation is working behind the scenes in many of the things that we're doing. Um, And I think another thing that we can also overlook, and particularly for people that live in modern industrialised societies, like I imagine many of the listeners to this podcast will, is that for the vast majority of our time on Earth, life for our species has been difficult. So we've spent the vast majority of our time on Earth as a species, we've spent in very difficult environments where we needed to work together to survive. So we know that humans evolved in um, sub-Saharan Africa in some of the most difficult and changeable regions on the planet where food was difficult to come by it had to be searched for or scavenged or killed. And at the same time, there were a bunch of things wandering around that would quite like to scavenge or kill us and maybe have us for uh, lunch or something like that. So we really needed to work together to survive. And in some respects, I think this this kind of evolutionary history and this particularly inhabiting these difficult regions starts to sort of highlight some of the differences actually between humans and our closest living relatives on the planet which are the other great apes of course and what we see in humans is that we are much much more cooperative in many ways than any of the other great ape species but in part that's because we had to be we it's only us that lived in these difficult environments or where we had this evolutionary history of adversity if you like and when we look at the kinds of environments that the contemporary great apes live in, so the chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos, orangutans, they're really quite different to the kinds of environments that characterised the majority of human evolution. And, you know, I've said in the past, in in some respects, you can think of the environments that, uh, that, that the other great apes live in as being basically giant salad bowls, where it's pretty easy for individuals to find the food they need to support any dependent offspring they might have. Uh, and I think that These differences, this kind of evolutionary history of really being in difficult environments where we had to work together is something which explains why we're so cooperative now still, Mm -hmm. and also highlights in many ways why our species has been so extraordinarily successful and why we have managed to not only survive in those difficult environments, but to spread out from there and to thrive, basically, in almost every habitat on the planet.
0: Well, listening to that i'm thinking you know it's important isn't it for us to look back and to look at the lessons of the past and to think how they might inform decisions that we would make in the future now i'm someone who's always very future thinking you know i talk a lot about innovation and the future and so i'm always looking ahead and thinking okay what could what could this look like what could that scenario be and so of course when you're describing you know difficult uh, i guess environments in terms of survival as a human species i suppose it does feel very very different to the life this is the world that we all live in now and it feels like okay if we don't have this shared i suppose common goal or or crisis or, or whatever into that, that requires us to collaborate together then if you, if you take that away and if we all live as we kind of do now i suppose do you think that Without a common goal, is that where this kind of collaboration essentially breaks down and we start to maybe segregate? And, you know, some people would argue that right now there's a lot of segregation in the world and there's a lot of conflict. Do you think that is because we no longer have this shared common goal that we're all working towards?
1: I think that's a really interesting question, and I think it's partly right. So I think You know, the one example that really springs to mind that is very salient for everyone still probably is what happened, in you know, when with the pandemic that we, to some extent, are still in, but, you know, over the last few years, how has that affected our social behaviour? And one thing I think that was really striking, in particular at the very beginning of the pandemic, was just how much this sense of a shared threat and Mm. a shared collective threat motivated people to cooperate so i mean um at that point i still lived in london and on in my neighborhood as in many neighborhoods in the uk and also in other countries in the very early days of covid we saw a, a sort of real resurgence of grassroots local community level cooperation so lots of things like mutual aid groups were springing up and things like this and so in one sense we did see that, you know, we, we see that when we have these kinds of collective threats, we are able to rise to it. You know, we are able to cooperate. But I think the other sort of insight for me that came from the COVID uh, pandemic was that that kind of cooperation was often quite local in scale. So it wasn't, mm. it was often quite circumscribed. It didn't really, in um, it didn't really sort of scale up to the global or societal level cooperation that was needed a lot of the time. So when you think about things like how vaccines were shared globally um, or people's willingness to say not buy up all the pasta in the supermarket or the mm. toilet rolls and those things. I mean, seems a long time ago now. Right. But, you know, we were we were cooperating in some ways, but we were also uh, in other ways, we were also behaving you know, quite selfishly. And so I think there's always this tension between cooperation at different scales where sometimes we can have a shared threat, whether that is from a virus, something in the environment, or indeed from other groups or other people. And Mm. those kinds of threats can galvanize cooperation at one scale. So it can galvanize if you're against an opposing group, for example, that can galvanize cooperation within your group. But the really difficult thing for our species, I think, and the thing where we struggle is scaling that cooperation up beyond these sort of local group level boundaries. And unfortunately, that is the thing we have to be able to get better at if we want to tackle the, the global problems that we actually face.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's a really complex, really complex thing to consider, you know, when a lot of people would think about cooperation as as, as compliance. And, you know, again, I reference this idea of future thinking, and I suppose what I'm referring to there is potentially, you know, if you think about the climate crisis and some of the things that um, are being depicted, I suppose, for the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, and the fact that that essentially is a shared threat, you know, that's something that is going to impact everyone on the planet some people in 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 places more than others initially and i suppose that's something that yeah i guess is there um i suppose a lesson or something that we need to be considering from our from our past in terms of how we collaborate and how we cooperate as a species that could essentially yeah save us in the future when we're gonna have less maybe less resources as you described then it sounds silly to say oh okay people selfishly went up to the supermarkets and tried to hoard their food but actually if you think about a time in the future where there may be less food available for a very long time, um, you know, and and resources are going to be a real challenge in certain places in the world. What things do we need to consider there about, yeah, how we can work together to to get a better outcome for everyone?
1: So I think it's a massive question. And it's not, you know, it's obviously there are no like silver bullet answers to these kind of massive global scale problems. Um, I think one thing that we all could do, and again, just to use you know, COVID as a really striking example, again, is to appreciate that um, we're actually much more interdependent than we can possibly um, realize. So, you know, it's very difficult for us to appreciate that the fortunes or, you know, the illness that someone living in a different country in a different continent might have could somehow find its way to impacting us. But that is, mm-hmm. of course, exactly what has happened in how this pandemic has played out. And in many ways, we have to start getting um, better at realising that all of our fortunes on this planet are interdependent and that what happens to people we don't know, we may never meet, that are living in different places, potentially people that haven't been born yet even, what happens to those people and their fortunes actually concerns us that we are all we're all kind of in this together in a way and i think so i think one appeal i would have is just kind of this uh trying to like generate this sense of in of positive interdependence that like when we all win when we win together um and but i think that the difficulty with that is that it's not intuitive for us it's, it doesn't really come easily to us to think in that way. And as a corollary of that, I think it isn't that easy for us to move beyond cooperating with us at local scales, with people we know, with our friends, with our communities, in our neighborhoods, to scaling that up to the level at which it's actually needed nowadays. And, and so one kind of way we might be able to bridge that gap is to do what the um, the late Nobel laureate Eleanor Ostrom called thinking global acting local so basically accepting that you know at, we find it pretty difficult to psychologically to kind of cooperate at global scales but finding ways that we can cooperate locally with people that we know in our neighborhoods um, at this kind of scale but in ways that actually don't only generate benefits locally To our neighbourhoods, to our friends, to our families, but actually generate global benefits. So that kind of idea of think global, act local, I -hmm. think has a lot of um, currency. Like I think that's something that will be really essential, and it offers a kind of path forwards for us, or a hopeful path forwards Mm -hmm. for us. But you know, it's not isn't going to be easy. And I, I think one other thing I always kind of think is, I think as a species, we're sort of in some ways we can be a bit prone to this kind of like fairy tale thinking about our our status on the planet and how, you know, Oh, we'll, you know, we'll have this start of a story and in the middle we'll face some adversity, but in the end it will all work out. Okay. And I Hmm. think the other thing is, I think we really need to snap out of the mindset that everything's all going to be okay because it will be if we decide to make it okay, but that's a decision we have to take. And, you know, we have to, realize that actually it's not a fairy tale there isn't some kind of preordained happy ending for our species that's gonna happen whatever we do and so i think we can resolve some of these global challenges but i think it really is up to us whether we will do that
2: hold up
0: Gosh, yes, so much in there, and I I really like this idea of you know the local and kind of I guess the more individual contribution to yeah to the collective to the group and and it sometimes does sound doesn't it a little bit kind of I don't know utopic but the reality is that yeah we all have a, pl- a part to play and I think it's exciting I, you know I think about tech innovation and you know some of the things that I know are potentially going to happen in the in the in the world of well-being, health, fitness, data sharing, and obviously what technology allows us to do. And I think that's hopefully going to be really exciting. There's going to be a lot of innovation, I think, around individuals contributing their information, their data, to essentially help. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Jane McGonigal's work, so she's a futurist and she talks a lot about scenarioing for future pandemics. And I think really, hopefully, there's a lot of smart people on this planet who are looking at these I guess solutions for for big problems but that actually regardless of whether you think you are the person that's going to change the world or save the world we all have an individual contribution and i think i think hopefully that is hopeful hopefully that's exciting Mm -hmm. and as an optimist i always think you know we will we will get there but you're right you know it's not it's not a guarantee happy ending hero's journey story that i think we like to to think about but you also, you also mentioned around uh, uh, similarities. And so that's something that I'd like to talk about. You know, We probably think about, when I said at the start, the work that you do in looking at human behavior alongside other species, I'm sure there's some like obvious similarities that we can all think about. So I need to eat, uh, procreate, sleep, there's things that I'm sure we think, well, every, every species on the planet does that. But are there some other less obvious similarities between us and some other species that might surprise us? Yeah,
1: I mean, that's kind of, that's the thing that my, I do in a way. So that's the kind of, the kinds of questions that I find super interesting. And um, so one fact uh, that we know about sociality on this earth is that outside of humans, when we see other species being cooperative, living in groups and things like that, we tend to see that the vast majority of that is happening within the confines of family groups. And there's a good reason for that. Um, Cooperation is favored within families because of the um, indirect genetic benefits that can be, that can, that that individuals can confer on their relatives by helping them. So we see lots and lots of cooperation within family groups outside of humans. But what we don't see so much of is the kind of thing that we think makes us really quite different, which is cooperating with not only with uh, non-relatives, but also with complete strangers, with people Hmm. we don't know, people we might never meet again. And there is one species that actually does this that I've worked on quite a bit, which we would never normally think of that we would have much in common with. Uh, And the species is called the blue streak cleaner wrasse. And it's a small fish that lives throughout the Indo-Pacific on coral reefs. And um, I often describe clean fish as being a bit like the hairdressers of coral reefs. Mm. So they they have these little cleaning stations where they live, um, a bit like their hairdressing salons. And they basically stay there. And all the other fish on the reef, who we just, for convenience, we call them the clients, Will visit the cleaning station in order to receive a cleaning service, which basically involves the cleaner fish nibbling away any parasites that are on the surface of the client's skin or even taking away dead skin and things like that. So, this seems like it should be, you know, in some ways not a very interesting thing. It's, you know, the cleaner fish uh, gets a meal the client gets the nasty parasites removed. So in some ways you think, what does this have in common with the kind of cooperation that I'm talking about in humans, where we sort of go out of our way to help strangers and things like that. And that the answer is that in fact, there's a conflict between the cleaners and their clients, because even though the cleaner fish will eat parasites and dead skin, what it prefers to eat and what it does eat if it's given the chance, is the client's living tissues so it prefers to be living scales and also mucus which is a living protective layer that the client has on the surface of its skin and so now this makes the interaction actually quite interesting from the point of view of understanding cooperation because we have a situation where we've got these two individuals that have a conflict of interest but where somehow the interaction has to be resolved um, Mm cooperatively even though you know there's no police fish swimming around on the reef they can't talk about it beforehand you know the client can't say right make sure you only eat parasites and don't bite me um they they can't sign a contract or anything like that so somehow they find a cooperative solution and strikingly the mechanisms they use to do it look very similar in a lot of ways to the mechanisms that we use to foster cooperation among strangers in our societies. So we know that in humans, for example, two really important mechanisms for sustaining cooperation where people might otherwise be tempted to behave selfishly or to act in their own self-interest are the threat of being punished for doing that and the possibility to gain status or reputation benefits or not wanting to look bad basically and strikingly both of those things we also see evidence for in this cleaner fish system so if a cleaner fish bites a client they will often be aggressively punished by the client or even potentially aggressively punished by one of the other cleaner fish that's close by so they even police one another in those mm. interactions and secondly the cleaner fish also seems to have a rudimentary concern for its reputation so what happens on these um, on these cleaning stations is that because there's not as many cleaner fish as the number of clients that need to be cleaned, often the clients are having to wait around a little bit to wait their turn to, to be inspected by the cleaner fish. And while they're waiting, they can watch what's happening at the cleaning station. And if they see the interaction end badly with the current client, so if they see, for example, the current client swimming away very quickly or maybe even punishing the cleaner fish often the clients that are waiting will simply swim away and find a different better cleaning station to visit and the cleaner fish is aware of that and if they're being watched in particular by the very valuable clients that have say very big clients that are very valuable have a big food source um, they will actually Be nicer to the current client they're working on to make sure that the queuing ones won't swim away. And so to me, I found this amazing because I think, well, you'd never think we've got much in common Mm -hmm. with a fish living on a coral reef. But there we see these kinds of same mechanisms are supporting cooperation among strangers underwater, Mm -hmm. you know, in the Mm -hmm. Indo-Pacific as what we see in our own societies
0: yeah it is absolutely fascinating and also i like that the way you paint that picture of you know the hairdresser and the the idea of people you know the fish queuing up almost and this this idea of reputation being so important and essentially the the perception you know the perception of of others that that we give or that, or that they give and i think that idea of reputation and status is is really important and actually uh, it got me thinking about how those things potentially are changing because if you think back to i guess again, a long time ago, where we would be in proximity to one another. And this idea that, you know, reputation, even if you just look at children, you know, and when as they're developing in age two, three, four, and how they interact, and when they start to notice this idea of status in a group. And I think that actually, as we're now moving to a world where we are maybe more isolated, maybe we have less proximity, even just thinking about, you know, work situations and people who might be working remotely now on a screen, you know, how do you think that's, is that potentially gonna change how we, how the importance of reputation and and I guess all the, so much of, Communication is nonverbal, isn't it? So the observations that these, I guess it's kind of a big leap here, but the observations that those fish are making, they're only seeing it because they're there. So we might pick up on things when we spend time with others in a group, but are those things gonna dissipate if we're, yeah, if we're all working alone and we only check in for an hour on a meeting via a screen, the rest of that time, we're not actually together. So do you think yeah, the the, the idea of our reputation and status is going to change now that we are essentially much more isolated and remote?
1: Um, To be honest, not really, because I think I don't think reputation is only something that we that we can accrue or lose in sort of face to face real world interactions. I mean, like, I'm just thinking about say, um, well, Twitter or any kind of social media platform where there's a lot of signalling, you know, going on on these platforms. Some people, you know, talk about virtue signalling, other people talk about um, status competition. So I think there's lots of ways we can use digital technology and that people do use digital technology to, Mm. you know, to try to gain status, whatever that status may be. And also, uh, you know, famously on these platforms, we also take status away from people. So, I mean, like that's mm. the whole debate around um, cancel culture and you know, things like that is basically,
0: mm.
1: I don't know, taking status and reputation away from people. And but
0: I, is it, as, I think... is it as real though? Sorry, is it as real though, so for example, the status that we might create for ourselves online, you know, a persona, a personality, a professional brand, you know, even just for an individual to be able to create something potentially online you can keep that up or you can kind of, I don't know, kind of safeguard that uh, through these things, like you say, virtual virtue signaling. Whereas in real life, if you are face to face with a group of people day in, day out, say for example, in a school environment or an office environment, is it as easy to, I suppose, curate that stasis and that personality? Or is it like, you're gonna see people's real true, you know, some way, if it's the way they respond to things, the way they react, the way they just conduct themselves there, their energy everything like that is it more yeah face to face every day is that going to give us a better indication of the truth or do you think nowadays actually yeah our online reputations and our online I guess personas are I mean it's very like I could say it's quite complex but essentially that's just an extension of who we are I think
1: it so I think the question is quite interesting I, I do share I, I share your sentiment and I know what you mean about saying There's a lot of low cost things you can do online that, you know, might burnish your reputation, but are basically maybe not that informative as to your true character. So, you know, just Mm. clicking, liking something. I think it's been called slacktivism. You know, there's even been studies that have shown things like the tendency to like uh, charitable campaign or something like that on facebook is actually associated with a reduced willingness to support that thing because once people feel like they've liked it they don't need to actually you know do anything in a way so i get what you mean i think that there is it is the kind of signaling that we see online because it isn't costly a lot of the time because it is low cost signaling is potentially not as informative about somebody's underlying character or you you know in, in the way that say interacting with them on a sustained basis in the real world might be um but the, what i think the other point that i think is important is that in some ways there's no there's no such thing as a person's uh true reputation if you like so it's not that um you can't have a reputation that's an absolute quantity because reputation is basically in the eye of the beholder and mm. so while one you know you might be able to curate an online reputation and in the eyes of those beholders online, you might be one thing. And yeah, you might be something completely different to people who interact with you in the real world. And maybe you're something different even among that group as well. So some people think you're great, other people not so Mm. much. And I think that 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 idea that we could even have a kind of absolute quantity of reputation, I, I don't think we can in a way. I think that how we're perceived by other people depends on the person who's perceiving and that's why it's actually so difficult in some respects for us to navigate this um, this aspect of our social lives because we often we don't really know and often what we you know, something which might improve our status in the eyes of one individual might actually reduce it in the eyes of somebody else. And um, I think that this is actually a really interesting and quite underexplored aspect of human, social behaviour, but one that we're actually working on in, in, in my lab at the moment is this, how, you know, how do we actually curate reputations and how do we understand how our actions will affect what people think of us? So, and are we accurate, you know, do we do we do that mm-hmm. accurately or do we tend to not really have a good grasp on how what we're doing will affect our status and our reputation? So I think these are all quite interesting, open questions, actually.
0: Yeah, it is interesting and I think you're totally right. That idea that, you know, status isn't something that we can take essentially or, or curate, it's actually attributed to us. And yeah, it's given by by the others or by the group. Um, and also you mentioned a while back actually, this word about strangers. And I think it's kind of when you were talking about the the example of the cleaner fish and, you know, why essentially, is it sometimes for us in our why is it in our benefit to help someone who we don't know so like you said outside of the family outside of the group we've all probably seen and heard this idea of you know random acts of kindness and we see them and they go viral online when people help someone or they they do something for uh, in service of of a complete stranger so what is going on there I suppose from our social behavior lens when we do something that is that is completely you know non, not non-beneficial to us at all it is an act of kindness it's for a stranger why do we innately have a desire to do that
1: so one thing um i'm often accused of in a way as an evolutionary biologist is taking the altruism out of altruism by trying to understand how what you're calling random acts of kindness or you know cooperating helping strangers how that can ultimately be beneficial to individuals. And I think it's really important to try and dispel this misunderstanding, because um, I think a lot of the time what people hear when when evolutionary biologists talk about these things is, oh, you think the only reason that I'm doing X, Y, and Z is because I'm going to benefit from it. And that's not the reason. The reason I'm doing it is because I want to do it. And I, you know, I, I don't care about the benefits. And I think it's just really important to dispel that that isn't we're not we that's not an argument that we're making. So we're not saying that just because you can reconcile a helpful act with downstream benefits to the helpful individual, we're not saying that the only reason individuals ever help or do anything nice is because they're trying to gain those benefits. And sometimes I use a different analogy because I think it just really helps to think about um how you can separate the motive for doing something and the ultimate evolutionary benefit for for doing that thing. So, um, if you imagine, for example, uh, let's say you're on safari and you you're lucky enough to see a lioness or some lionesses hunting a gazelle, you might ask yourself, why are they doing that? And on a motivational level, it could be because they're hungry or maybe. They've got cubs to feed or something like that. But on an evolutionary level, we can also say, well, on average, lionesses that do this sort of thing tend to survive better and have more offspring. And so they don't need to be aware of that benefit for them to hunt a gazelle, just like we don't need to be aware of any downstream benefit of helping other individuals for us to be motivated to do it. So... Um, I just always try to stress that because I think there's often quite, there is often a bit of misunderstanding. But once if we park that for a minute, and we accept that the motives that drive behavior can be separate from the evolutionary benefit of doing the behavior, then we can see that actually this tendency to help strangers to be cooperative is likely to have been very advantageous to individuals who were cooperative. So we've Mm. talked a bit already about reputation and status benefits. Those are really powerful drivers of cooperation. Even when you're helping someone you might never meet again, um, you can gain, individuals do gain reputation and status benefits from those kinds of unconditionally helpful acts. It can be, like we've also talked about interdependence, it can be that sometimes helping another individual is the best thing for you as well. So when fortunes are intertwined, it can be directly beneficial for you to help other individuals because you benefit as a byproduct of them benefiting. So um, there are lots of ways we can reconcile a tendency for helpful behavior with an evolutionary advantage without actually calling into question the purity of anybody's motives or, you know, Mm. without even really thinking about motives, actually, even though motives are interesting in their own right. And I think that's something you want to talk about in a moment.
2: But yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. And and thanks for explaining it in that way, because I know it's very complex. And of course, these things aren't as simple as, uh, you know, I understand the motivation between, be, behind why I'm doing this. It, somebody might say, well, actually, it's like you say, an, an innate or subconscious or even I'm just thinking right down to the kind of nurturing element that, again, going back to children that I see in In very young children of, say, for example, I don't know, they've got a doll and the dolls, they'll put a plaster on the knee and they say, oh, I want to make it better and give them a medicine. And like, it sounds, again, quite a simple example, but it's this idea that nurturing is actually innate for for some people. And it's something that we want to do to, to help others. But then again, on a on a much on a much different scale when it is yeah for example some random person in the street or you know someone says oh hey I've uh, I don't know I've, I've lost my wallet could you lend me five pounds to get the ten pounds to get the train or whatever and you're never going to see that person again then yeah I think it is interesting to explore well actually why why is it that I believe anyway again as an optimist and as someone who does I guess give people the benefit the doubt and I do believe that you know I see the good I think actually a lot of people again even though If you just go on Twitter today, you might see a lot of shouty people, a lot of divisiveness, a lot of anger. It might seem like everybody in the world is yelling at one another. But actually, I think we see more and more that people do want to help others. People do want to, you know, again, going back to what you said about the pandemic, people would, you know, really this local idea of, you know, knocking on your neighbor's door and seeing how they were doing, or, you know, just just contributing. And and I do think that, again, the optimist in me is hopeful that people are innately, whatever for whatever reason, they want to do things in service of others, regardless of if, yeah, the initial impact uh, is good for them. But moving on to the idea of, motivations and obviously motivation I suppose is a topic that I talk about a lot on this show and, and in my book and in my work but when it comes to how self-motivated we are or how self-determined we are do you believe that again this kind of idea of being self-motivated people often ask me Adrian does it come down to nature or nurture are you just a motivated person are some people just self-motivated and others aren't and I guess linking it back again are we more motivated to do things that benefit ourselves or are we more motivated to take action, to, to do things, to be galvanized when the benefit will, will benefit an entire group? So I guess I've got two questions there. First one, motivation. Do you think it's nature, nurture?
1: Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, Um, I think um, for sure, like there's some aspects of it that are built in. So if you want to say like that's nature, I mean, we're hugely Empathic. And so, you know, you mentioned a moment ago about empathy and wanting to, you know, the idea of a a child wanting to nurture a doll. And like that is something which is, you know, all humans have a capacity for empathy and and experience empathy to varying degrees. But one thing that's quite interesting is that actually the extent of that empathic concern is quite bounded and it is quite fickle. So um, there's an effect in psychology. Um, called the identifiable victim effect, which is that we often feel more empathy when we're confronted with the plight of a single identifiable individual than when we're confronted with the plight of, you know, lots and lots of individuals suffering. And this is a bit strange if you think about it from a psychological point of view, because, you know, in some ways, the more suffering, the more that should actually kind of trigger an empathic response. But somehow, you know, our brain's are not really don't seem to be wired that way and 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 so i think there are some elements of motivation to help that are sort of come preloaded in a way and then there are other there are other aspects of that which can be nurtured during development or which can be learned and and so um yeah so like for example this you know the wanting to help larger numbers of people or feeling empathy for larger numbers of people would be something that actually, I think would have to be actively sort of learned during development in a way because it's not, isn't something I don't think that people are necessarily, um, it's not an intuitive or a sort of innate thing to do, but we obviously, you know, we are able to do it with experience. So like all the interesting questions in psychology, I mean, nature, nurture, it's always a bit of both basically.
0: Yeah, yeah, a bit of both. And making it, it's making me think of the example that you said about the group of when apparently, statistically, you know, when people see a maybe a an accident or a crisis, if there's no one else around, people are more likely to intervene and to rush over and to help. Whereas if there's lots and lots of people around, people think, oh, actually, someone else will do it. So then they don't.
1: Yeah, that's that's it. yeah. So that's the effect um, in psychology is the bystander effect, which is a very mm. well documented effect of, if I'm the only person, I you know I, I'll and someone needs help, I'll do it. Whereas um, the more people there are, actually, the more chance there is of there being inaction. And again, I mean these 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 kinds of insights I think are quite relevant for us when we start thinking about you know, global problems that, that do require global cooperation, but where we seem to also, you know, have a bit of inaction and, and collective, you know, paralysis in some ways of actually taking the first step to do something and to, to, to try to affect change.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's, you know, again, we talked about it before with this idea of collaboration versus compliance. But yeah, I guess when we think that the problem is really, really huge. So, for example, the climate crisis or, you know, sustainability issues, I do think, again, it's that bystander effect kind of probably comes into play because you think, well, my my contribution is so small that actually if everybody else is doing it or if everybody else isn't doing it, then it doesn't really matter. You know, my, my contribution doesn't really matter uh, or that, you know, someone else is going to come up with a solution and then we'll either have to do it or we won't. And it's again, it's interesting. I had this kind of debate with someone recently that said, actually, things have to be mandatory. They have to we have to make people change their behavior. Otherwise, they never will. So, yeah, I think it'd be interesting, I suppose, to see which things are going to essentially uh, potentially become mandated in order for us to make those changes.
1: Yeah, I mean, what sort of things do you have in mind? Like, what sort of things are you thinking would be mandatory?
0: Well, it might be things to do with food consumption. So for example, if there's less, you know, land in the future which can be farmed and there's less agriculture, maybe there's less animals on the planet that we can eat, then maybe actually we can't just say to people, eat less meat. You know, maybe it actually has to become mandated of how much meat people can consume. And although some people would think, oh my gosh, Adrienne, that sounds so far-fetched, <laughs> so crazy. You know, again, you think back to the pandemic, we all had to do things that we probably Never thought we would have had to do so. If someone said you are not allowed to get on a flight unless you have this vaccine, people would have said no way. The you know they can't make people can't make people do things. But I do again thinking about futurism, and I'm fascinated by this. I think there could be a lot of things in the future that we may be forced to do or or mandatory. You know that, for example, again, let's say whether it's uh, a different virus or a different disease or something that causes you know. Bigger segregation, essentially. Then, yeah, I think we could see a lot of changes and a lot of mandatory things that will very quickly, that you know, stages of change very quickly will accept them and will adapt because we'll be forced to.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it sort of sounds authoritarian, but I know what you mean, and and I guess what I would say in response is that, in many ways, that won't be such a different scenario for our species because we're already. Um, we already live by so many different norms, rules, whether they are explicitly sort of described and enforced or more implicitly enforced or socially enforced. And we're like in part, that's also part of the reason that we have been able to sort of scale up cooperation from from beyond the realms of these small family groups and to live in the massive large-scale societies that many of us live in nowadays. Like those those kinds of arrangements social arrangements wouldn't be possible if we didn't have a set of shared rules norms guidelines that we sort of adhere to broadly and mm. so I don't really uh, disagree in, in some respects that like maybe additional rules will you know will be will come into force in the future that's kind of in some respects that's that's part of what has been happening continually over human evolution and in particular cultural evolution of these different norms and things like that is always Mm. has always changed and is always changing and that's really important like that's the ability to create uh and enforce standards and rules of behavior is critical for our success so Mm. yeah while while i don't want to be i don't want to basically come across as being some kind of authoritarian (laughs) scientist (laughs) but like if you just think about it in a more abstract way there wouldn't, there's actually, we already are rules driven species and I, I don't really see it. I don't think it's that controversial in a way to suggest that we will continue to invent and, you know, new rules in the future. And mm. I guess the, the controversy is like, what will those be and how will they be enforced?
0: But yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think we are, of course, we without, you know, rules and I suppose order and structure, then potentially what would it be complete chaos? But I agree with you, it's gonna be, the controversy will be around how and when, and also how fast people are expected to adapt to change. Because I think that what we saw with the pandemic was certain things, We had to change quickly you know certain things were just like this is the rule and you've got to get on board and that's it and i think that's where the controversy or the backlash or people's resistance comes is because people need time to you know accept an idea think about it change their behavior they don't like shock you know we don't like shock do we we don't like quick changes and so i think you're right i think things will of course inevitably we're always uh, living within you know rules and systems but i think it's when those rules and systems change quickly that's when we might have a problem
1: yeah uh, yeah these are like super interesting um (laughs) empirical questions in a way like what to what extent are we willing to change the rules like when I think that I don't think we have like really good answers yet on a scientific level for like what how do people respond to rule changes and again not to just be the kind of it's a bit more complicated than that person but like it will also depend on I think probably one thing it will really be critical on is people's perceptions of how do these rules affect me? Like, what am I gaining from this rule? What am I losing from it? Do I believe the narrative for why this rule is important? So Mm -hmm. like, in the context of COVID, for example, you know, different people could it was easier for some people to follow the rules than for other people. So for someone like me, it was basically quite easy to follow a lot of the social isolating rules because I happen to work in a job where if I don't, if I don't have to leave, uh, if I can't leave the house, it's not a big problem. I can still get paid and, you know, all that kind of thing. Whereas like, you know, for some people that just wasn't feasible, right? So like, depending on what the rule is and how it's going to impinge on you and your ability to meet your basic needs, you'll get different kind of endorsement or or acceptance of those rules. And that's always going to be the case with any kind of rule that we sort of collectively try to come up with and enforce. And I think that's the difficulty in a way, is like navigating the complexity of the issue. Like how, how do we get people on board with these things, even though this is going to differentially impact people and, you know, it's going to have different impacts on different people and that will affect how willing they are to abide by these things? I think those are like super interesting questions that almost like have to tackle on a case by case basis.
0: Yes, exactly, and also have to be open to a variety of different outcomes and answers. So, for example, having like a a list of you you know you just talked about then exceptions to the rule, having a list of exceptions to the rule, and even just as an again as an individual, asking yourself what would make you break that rule. So again, Jane McGonigal, when she talks about future pandemics and and scenarioing, I suppose, they asked people if there was a pandemic where these things happened, what would make you break that rule? And so when people actually sat down and thought about it with, you know, relations to to an influenza pandemic like COVID, it was things like, well, I would break the rule if I wanted to leave the house to go to a religious festival or, you know, a funeral or things that we actually saw, people were willing to break the rules in certain settings. So I think, again, that's also something to consider is like, when would you... Personally, you know, and again, it doesn't have to necessarily be about the group right now, but just thinking to yourself, okay, which rules would I, or when there is a new rule, what is it that would make me potentially break that rule? What are those kind of exceptions? Because yeah, as you say, fascinating stuff to think about. And I, I, I'm, I love this, this kind of thing. I could do this all day, but sadly, I don't have all day to sit and talk with you, Nicola. I'm conscious of your time. And I always conclude the The podcast with uh, the section around the power hour and the concept of the power hour. So it's very simple. It's all about the first hour of every single day. So for me, for years and years and years now, I think it's maybe seven years, I have you know, dedicated the first hour of my day to doing something very intentional. And I believe that it sets me up for a brilliant day ahead, whatever I'm doing. So before I ask you the question about your power hour, because I'd love to hear what you do in the morning, I guess we were talking a lot about, you know, different species behavior. And also we haven't really even mentioned that much about the book. So I'd love if you could kind of tell people a little bit more about the book. But is there anything to say that other animals or other species have a way of measuring time so obviously not in the way that we do which is hours or days or weeks but other than just day and night do you have you seen in your work there are any other species who know that it's the morning or that measure time
1: well i've got a dog and he definitely knows when it's dinner time and you can set (laughs) the clock by him essentially and so i so you know anecdotally yes but there's also like a bunch of super interesting studies on species um, like squirrels and um, scrub jays, species that are called caching species. So basically, they are, they're species that they find food now, and they hide it somewhere so they can eat it later, basically. So they hide food in different places. And there's been a bunch of really interesting work done by um, Professor Nikki Clayton at Cambridge, showing that these species, a lot of these species that cache food, that hide it away so they can eat it later, have a representation of what they have hidden and whether it's perishable or not. And depending on the interval that you give them to go and retrieve the food, they will re- they will either, if it's a short interval, they'll preferentially go and retrieve the stuff that will go off quickest but if it's a longer interval they just won't go back for the stuff that will have gone off so I think like this kind of concept of time and why that matters you can find that in lots of species you know from my dog downstairs who will wait there at 5 p.m every single day looking (sighs) at me to something like a squirrel or a scrub jay that knows okay the worms are probably not great now I'll go for the nut or something like that
0: Wow. Yeah, it is fascinating because as someone who thinks about time a lot and talks about time and how valuable time is, and I sometimes yeah I've had this conversation with people before where it was actually more about like conscious consciousness and, and thinking about the future and future planning and thinking. Well, actually, does the dog sit and think? Oh, what am I going to do next Thursday or ne- in no, six months or in not. you know? Not <laughs> That's that the really thing.
1: interesting thing. There's basically no evidence. That's the thing that I think is quite different between humans and other species is this idea of foresight and future planning. Mm. there's some evidence in chimpanzees that maybe they do this so for example they sometimes if they find a really good tool they'll keep hold of it and they'll take it with them to the place where they can crack the nuts for example so it seems like maybe they are planning something for like you know they're thinking about the future but for the vast majority of species that capacity to imagine a future and to think about what might happen in that future is as far as we know we that we don't really see that in other species so that is you know that's
0: something quite special about humans in a way yeah yeah I think it's a it's a wonderful thing that we can do as someone who's a big future thinker it's a wonderful thing to be able to think about the future but it also of course as we know comes with a cost because often for a lot of people thinking about the future is actually what causes them worry stress and anxiety whereas our our pets are just you know enjoying their afternoon nap and they're not stressed about next week
1: totally yeah
0: so, can you tell us, Nicola, what do you do in the first hour of your day, and what what time does your day typically start?
1: I feel like my day's start is not going to be as impressive as yours. So, um, I have our house is a bit of a madhouse. I've got two young kids and a dog, so the start of the day is invariably chaotic. Mm. Um, it will not almost always involve. I do tend to exercise every day, so that's one thing I try to. I'll either run with the dog if it's the weekend. I go out on my bike, I'm a very avid cyclist. So yeah, some kind of exercise, a cup of tea. um, Yeah, general chaos, basically. Trying to get two kids out of the house and to school.
0: Yeah I mean it doesn't sound that different to mine to be honest so yeah I think a lot of people a lot of people uh, in the mornings that's to be honest that's why my power hour started in the first place because I thought actually I need to carve out a bit of space and time before all of those things happen but thank you so much Nicola I found this conversation fascinating I knew that I would I know that we kind of went like here there and everywhere and uh, you know trying to connect the dots between all of these different things and these big big questions but I really really appreciate your time so thank you very much for joining us. Awesome.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: And before you go, please, can you tell everyone where they can get the book, The Social Instinct?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, available in anywhere you might buy books, all good bookstores, online. Uh, yeah, you should, should be able to find it anywhere. And it's just come out in paperback um, with a new subtitle because that has confused some people. It's now called The Social Instinct. What Nature Can Teach Us About Working Together?
0: Wow, brilliant. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone for tuning in and listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. See you.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,